It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Welcome to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman. And this show is brought to you by Audible.com. Uh, if you, uh, you go to audibletrial.com front slash Opperman Report, and you can sign up for free and get yourself a free audiobook. Uh, now, tonight, if you're listening to our show for the first time ever tonight, I'd like to invite you to visit my website, oppermanreport.com, because we also have a, a member section there with content that you won't be able to find uh, live on the radio. It's only found in our member section by subscription. And also send me an email at oppermanreport at gmail.com and let me know what you think of the show, okay? Uh, tonight, we have a very special guest. Uh, this is a show I've been trying to do for a while. Uh, very fascinating woman named uh, Betty Metzger. And she's written the book called The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI. Uh, she's written a couple other books, too. Uh, one is called uh, Winds of Change and uh, Framed. Winds of Change Framed. And another one is uh, Women at Work. And uh, she's from New York, I think Connecticut, I believe, the home of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we were just talking up there about Donald Trump. We can't believe it. I, I'm going to have a heart attack here, here tonight. But, but Betty, are you there, my friend? I am. I am. So Betty, Very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. We've been trying to get this for a while. I've been going to your Facebook page trying to book this. Uh, but finally, one of my producers, Keith Davis, uh, who was uh, great at recommending uh, interesting hosts and uh, uh, guests and topics, uh, finally was able to run down your information for me. So thank you very much, Keith. Um, so, uh, Betty, why don't you tell us a little about yourself, and then we'll get into this whole story about the burglary, uh, about these activists back uh, uh, who burglarized the FBI headquarters and, and stole documents out of there and uh, uh, uncovered the old COINTEL program. Yeah. Well, I'm a journalist, and I, and I taught journalism for a while also. Um, I started out as a, a daily reporter in a small paper in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. The Tribune Democrat, which was actually a Republican newspaper, despite that name. I worked there, and then uh, I went to Philadelphia, and I worked for the for the Evening Bulletin. And that's it's interesting when you uh, later uh, see how your contact early on led to things that you did later. When I was in uh, Philadelphia, my main assignment was that I was supposed to be covering religion. But um, many of the people in the anti-war movement uh, at that time were from religious organizations, uh, the Berrigan Brothers among them, sure. but also uh, other other various groups from Jewish, Protestant, uh, Catholic uh, faith were involved in leading the anti-war movement. So it was at that time that I met some of the people who later became significant in telling the story of, of the burglary. And then after Philadelphia, I went to Washington. Um, I arrived there in 19, the very beginning of 1970 as a reporter at the, at the Washington Post. And it was while I was there that the burglars sent me 
the files that they had stolen from the FBI office. Oh, they fed you, you said. They sent me, yeah. They sent you. Um, they sent me. <laughs> After the burglary occurred on the night of March 8, 1971. Okay. And um, they then went out, there were eight of them, and they went out to a farmhouse on a Quaker conference ground that was about 30 miles from Philadelphia, quite remote. And um, they would go there after their day jobs every day and read the files. And then after they had done that for about 10 days and had collated them and chosen the ones that they wanted to send out, they had them organized in packets. And they sent the first uh, packet to five different people. And I was, I was one of those five people. And I, was, and I was a reporter at the Washington Post at the time. Okay, wow. So mm-hmm. you get to wait. Did you get a call first or you just get an envelope in the mail? No, no. The burglars were very smart, wise burglars. <laughs> um, they planned very carefully. Um, and while the fact that they weren't caught, despite the fact that 200 and some FBI agents were immediately signed to try to find them, uh, and a an intense search that went on for five years. Um, one can say that the incompetence of the FBI in that search was very important to the fact that they were never caught. But it's also true that, that they were very smart. They were people who wore gloves at all times, uh, and they would have never called anybody <laughs> to say anything about this. Okay, so you, you get like a brown envelope with, I suppose, no return address on it, right? <laughs> Well, there was a return address, actually. It said Liberty Publications, Media, Pennsylvania. Um, and there was no such thing, but I had no way of knowing that. But uh, it seemed, it struck me as a little unusual. And so when I arrived at work, uh, it was a Tuesday morning, and I found that package. Um, it, it stuck out from uh, other a PR release that filled my mailbox. And so I did open that envelope right away. And there was a cover letter. And the cover letter said, uh, and the other four people had received the same cover letter, by the way. And it was a cover letter explaining that on the night of March 8th, that they had uh, a group of them who called themselves, it's a wonderful name, they called themselves the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. And the Citizens Commission had broken into this small FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and removed every file in the office, and that they had done this because they thought that the FBI, uh, as an arm of of the government, was uh, possibly, uh, likely, in their opinion, suppressing dissent. They were strong uh, activists against the war. And of course, that was what was most on their mind and also the civil rights movement. As it turned out, many of them had been involved in the civil rights movement going south every summer. But they had no evidence. And this was their motivation. And it's really important. Uh, I mean, people say, well, how in the world could a group of people decide to risk decades in prison, whole life away from their family, those who had children? Um, and they were motivated by what the leader of, of, of the group had described as a crime that he thought was taking place. 
and that, that crime being the suppression of dissent, which he thought was so precious. Uh, and he thought that if Americans knew that their dissent was being suppressed by the government, that they would be very upset. Now, to understand that, I think it's important um, to, to realize that J. Edgar Hoover was an iconic hero of Americans, while a lot of activists at that time had suspicions about whether or not he was, he was spying and suppressing dissent. The, the country as a whole adored him. Uh, he was one, truly one of the most popular people in, in the country. And at one time, he had even considered running for president. Um, and, but Bill Javidon, the leader of the group, um, and gosh, a physics professor at Haverford College, uh, Bill thought that if, if this was happening, people would be upset about it and they'd want something done. And that turned out to be the case. Now, back to that morning, um, it was a very unusual thing to have something like this happen. Another piece of context about the time uh, was that report. this was the first time that journalists had ever been sent uh, secret government files that had been stolen by someone outside the government who then provided them. Now, in other words, you know, whistleblowers are usually from inside the government. But even at that time, up until that time, there were even very few whistleblowers from inside the government. There also was almost no coverage of intelligence. Intelligence agencies, um, as far as journalists were concerned, had a free path. There was no, almost no investigative reporting about the FBI, with one exception, and we can come back to that later. Um, and but that was the same with Congress. There was there were no intelligence oversight committees. Uh, the Attorney General was the official boss of the director of the FBI, but in fact, almost all Attorney General uh, had let the FBI director do whatever he wanted to do. Um, and Captain Mack, just a few years earlier, had been an exception to that, and so had Robert Kennedy. Um, but J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI did whatever they wanted to do and had enormous power, and no one covered them except to do the kind of coverage that his enormous PR operation made possible, sending out constant positive releases. Yeah. So that, I just want to set that background as to how unusual the situation was. It's so true. It, w- it was such a different world back in those days. I, I, in 71, I guess I was like in the fifth or sixth grade, but I was following the the McGovern and uh, Nixon campaign. Uh, but but just think back in those days, you had TV shows like Dragnet, you know, where the cops were, you know, were the, the heroes, you know. Like, and, uh, you also had the FBI yeah, every yeah, Sunday night. Right. <laughs> it was on every night? Every Sunday night. Every Sunday night, yeah. And, and very, shows- pop, very popular show right. edited uh, by J- the network, ABC, made it available for him to edit it. That was part of the agreement of their joining the show. Right. Whole different world back in those days. And um, so, so go ahead, continue. Well, so I was surprised, to say the least, uh, when I started reading, when I read the cover letter. Uh, but one thing, there was no name attached to it, of course. 
um, and they said that uh, they were providing these these files. There were 14 in that initial package. They were providing them to uh, a group of us in the hope that we would want to make them public. And that uh, if we did, that they had others that, that they would make available. I had to be a little concerned that I was dealing with hoax mm. uh, at, at that point because it was so un- unusual. And especially when I got to the first file. The first file uh, contained a, a phrase, an expression, but it became emblematic of the, of the media burglary. It was a file uh, that described instructions to agents to behave in such a way uh, that they would make Americans paranoid. Mm. That's the actual description. And that it would enhance paranoia with how it's described and make people think that there was an FBI agent behind every mailbox. And I realized, of course, that that was a pretty startling statement. Um, so I continued reading, and uh, the next file was a description of a program that said was in operating in Philadelphia and was describing how it was operating, but also said that it was part of a national program. And this was something that also became a thread that ran through everything we eventually learned about J. Edgar Hoover, and that was his obsession with Black Americans. Mm. The program that was described in in that initial file was um, a program where every FBI agent was supposed to hire uh, informers to do full-time informing to them on Black Americans. And when I say Black Americans, I don't mean people who were suspected of, of crime or people who had any kind of record of violence or, or, or crime, but just Black people in general. And there was a list of the people, of the places where people, Black people should come under surveillance. Um, the corner store, uh, their schools, their libraries, bars, restaurants, uh, classrooms, uh, in high schools, in colleges. I mean, it, when you read it, it was a description of the places where the average person might go any day of their life. And that's where the informers were supposed to go and then write reports on black people. And then it turned out, as another file spelled out, that uh, every, as I mentioned, every FBI agent in the country was supposed to hire uh, an informer to report to him. They were all hymns at that point uh, on black people, except in Washington, D.C., where every FBI agent was supposed to hire six full-time informers to report to them on a regular basis on the activities of, of black people. And black students were a particularly uh, significant target. Every campus, there were documents in the original files that spelled out how they were supposed to establish uh, informers on every campus in that area of of Pennsylvania, but that also was going on again elsewhere in the country. So the racial aspect of it was really something to read. Now, how old were you when you received this document? 
Okay, how old? 1971. Uh, 1971, I was uh, 29 years old. Okay, now, now you pulled this document and you, you're reading about a police state. Were, were you in shock or was this, because when I'm hearing this, I'm terrified hearing this. Now, what, what was your emotion when you were reading this? Well, I was, I was shocked. Um, I did keep thinking until I got to later doctor. I remember I'd been a reporter in Philadelphia. And so I started seeing names of people that I had covered or, uh, until I realized this probably is real. Right. So I was in shock. Um, I went out to the, I had, there was a cluster of, um, in, who covered specialties off of the corner office off the newsroom at the Post. And I went, as soon as I was done reading them, I went out into the, to the national desk and I told them what I had received. And they had just had a call from the um, man named Ken Clawson, who was the national uh, staff reporter who covered the FBI and the Justice Department. And he had called from uh, the desk up there the press room outside the Justice Department, asking if we had received any of those files. And people on the desk had said no. Uh, but as soon as I walked out, they realized I probably have what he was talking about. And the reason he placed that call was that um, he knew from his... Okay, yeah, we just lost Betty again. That time the quote is totally dropped. Uh, we might have said FBI too many times. <laughs> We're calling again now. Oh, my goodness. Uh, or maybe it was something on her end. That would be terrible because this is a fascinating story. This is incredible. Uh, we have with us tonight uh, uh, Betty Metzger. Uh, and it's the story of uh, the burglary. Uh, the, the discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's secret FBI. And uh, let's see. We're calling again here now so we can get her back. I hope her phone didn't just die out altogether over there. Let's see. Betty Metzger. Uh, coming up next week, we have uh, Tom Secker. Uh, we're going to be talking about the uh, the FBI bombing at the World Trade Center, uh, the first one back in like '93. Man, about uh, his theories about that. Uh, coming up after that, we have uh, Donald Kessler. And what I'm going to be talking to Donald Kessler about is his book about uh, uh, the U.S. Secret Service. And we're also going to be talking about Adnan Khashoggi. He wrote a book about Adnan Khashoggi as well. Uh, he's a Pulitzer Prize one and a New York Times uh, best-selling author. Uh, and he just uh, wrote that story about how, uh, oh, you know what I have to say? Go right over here and do it. And uh, we're going to be talking to him, 812, about, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking to him uh, about his new book that just came out where uh, he interviewed the, uh, I don't know what's going on. I'm not getting through it at all. It's not even ringing. Maybe my internet's down. Ah, uh, that would stink. Yep, something's, something's, something's wrong here, guys. Something is wrong here, that's for sure. Because uh, this ain't getting through at all. Uh, add the contacts, it's added. Try again. Something is very, very wrong. Unusual. Uh, I don't know what to do. We may have to just play a, yeah, I'm not getting through it, Betty. Something is very strange here. Uh, you go to that plus, try that. That shouldn't be there. Okay. Ah, oh, we're not getting through at all, man. 
Yeah, I'm really getting nervous about this. Okay, let me check this number again. Okay. She's in the contacts. This is a, a number here. Okay, we're calling her. Oh, nah, it's bouncing again. Ah, boy. She's not on over there. I don't think I'm going to be able to get through. There's something very strange. Maybe she can call me. If I can message her on Facebook. And she can try and get through to me here. Okay, let's try getting through over here. Uh, uh, sorry about this, guys. Uh, just uh, We totally lost the call on Skype here. I'm not getting through. And very unusual because my Skype works pretty darn good. And I don't have these problems. Oh, hey, she's calling me. Okay, great. Hey, Betty. Hi, Ed. I lost you on the phone. I'm trying to call back on Skype. Is this good? No, this is great. But I, I called you like 20 times. I was trying to get through. I couldn't get through. I didn't get a ring. Sorry. Well, you want to know what? You sound a lot better now, too. Your audio sounds 100%. Okay, we'll stick with Skype. Okay, great. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, God. Because <laughs> I hate talking for two hours, let me tell you. <laughs> I'm pretty low tech here. I'm glad we, uh, between the two of us, we managed. But oh, no, I, was getting, I was getting worried there because we were just talking about the <laughs> state. And the next thing you know, I, we lose Betty. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> So where do we leave off? Um, about the, you knew some of the people that were in these. Oh, the, 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 I was going to, to, to the question of authenticity, and the Post reporter uh, knew that these two members of Congress, McGovern and Para Mitchell, had gotten the same files um, that I had just received, and that they had turned them into the FBI. Both of them had held, put out announcements saying. Uh, we think that there should be questions raised about the FBI, but we don't want to have anything to do with this crime. And therefore, we're giving the FBI these files. So the FBI, when they when Ken described the files I received, they said, yes, they are FBI files and you must not publish them. So we had our confirmation at that point that they were authentic. Okay. And from that point on, I'm off uh, working on the story. But what I didn't realize as I worked on the story was that throughout the afternoon, uh, the Justice Department, John Mitchell, John Mitchell was the attorney general. And some of your viewers may remember John Mitchell. This was the Nixon administration we're talking about. And John Mitchell uh, later went to prison because of his involvement with a, another burglary, a Watergate burglary. Um, but this day, in 71, just a couple of years before that, he's desperately trying to prevent the Washington Post from writing a story about these stolen files. What we didn't know, and I, I didn't find out until many years later, when I got the 34,000-page investigation of the burglary uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, was that the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times uh, were the other two people ha who had gotten the files, and they, too, had turned them in, not with any public announcement like the member of Congress, but they had turned them in to the FBI and not written about them. Um, and that also, all of that goes to show, again, what the culture of the time was like, that everybody who received them you know, realized that they were very important, but was so intimidated by the power 
of Hoover and, and the FBI and just thought that this was none of the press's business uh, to be writing on, on anything like this. So although you asked me how I felt, I was shocked, but I also was naive because one of the one of the uh, things that comes out of how young I was at the time was that I didn't fully realize the enormous power of the FBI. But more than that, I was too young and too new to Washington to be part of that culture uh, of protecting in intelligence agencies. So it's, to me, it simply seemed like this is very important information that the public needs to know. And again, what was happening while I was doing that was that the attorney general was calling Ben Bradley, the executive editor of the paper, Ben Bagdickian, the national editor of the paper, and Catherine Graham, the publisher of the paper, actually calling each of them uh, more than once uh, throughout that afternoon, uh, trying to convince them not to publish the file. And he said, as we've come to know since then repeatedly, what, what is said when officials are trying to get people not to publish is that you will endanger national security. But then even stronger than that, um, that you will endanger lives if you publish this. And fortunately, it was possible to read all of these files and to know that that was, that was not likely, not possible. They were not the kind of files that were going to endanger national security. They were going to reveal operations against Americans uh, that who were not the object of, of law enforcement and who had, who had done nothing wrong. And it showed the, the behavior instead of the FBI. But uh, what I also didn't know until I had it in my story at six o'clock that night was that uh, as of that moment, this, it was, they assumed the story was not going to be published. Uh, Catherine Graham did not want to publish and the legal counsel for the paper, who had been part of the discussions all afternoon and evening, also uh, believed that they should not be published. And the good luck that I had uh, was that Ben Bradley felt very strongly that they should be published and continued making the case uh, through the evening and finally at 10 o'clock, the latest time when they could make a decision for the next day's paper. At 10 o'clock, Catherine Graham reversed her decision and said that they should be published. And it was published the next day on the front page of the Washington Post and on other front pages of paper that re received the Post wires. And that was the first time that Americans had information about how the FBI was was operating. And one of the very strong reactions that was almost immediate was uh, from some members of Congress who had never said anything against Jane Hoover, but also editorial writers, comparing it to the Stasi, that information about the surveillance of black neighborhoods uh, throughout the country, and also the use of government informers on camp campus switchboard operators and, and others. That did cause people to think this is like a police state. And editorials were, were written that raised that question, you know, how can this be in a democratic society that, that we would have a law enforcement agency um, behaving like this?
Yeah, let me interrupt you because we're going to take a little commercial break. But people should know that the Stasi was the East German secret police that was uh, wiretapping everybody all over. Right. I should have said that. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> not everybody's our age, you know. No, right. And watch everybody. I mean, yeah. But we are tonight. We are here with Betty Metzger. Uh, fascinating woman. Thank you so much. Uh, she's the author of The Burglary, uh, as well as Winds of Change, uh, Change Frame, and Women at Work. And there's a link to each of these books on the Opperman Report blog. Uh, you can go there right now, click on these books, and read little descriptions on them and stuff like that. Uh, we'll be back with more of a, a Betty Menster uh, right after these messages. And now a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, the show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to pscoco.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, it could be in your mailbox in a couple of days, or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the Contact Us button, and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the cocoa chocolate business, and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. I want to welcome a newest sponsor, SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India. So you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring research network, customer care, press release, content writing and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at SubashTechnosis.com. Their website is www.SubashTechnosis.com. And their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Okay, welcome back to the Operan Report. I'm your host, private investigator at Operan. Uh, we're here tonight with Betty Metzger, uh, the author of The Burglary. Uh, as well as Winds of Change, Framed, and Women at Work. And the final link to all those books on the Opperman Report uh, blog. Oh, boy. Now, what? It, no, first, I got a couple questions for you. First of all, are all these FBI documents, are they available in the book? No, they're not all available in, in, the, in the book. I do quote from, from some of them. Okay. But... Um, the you you can um, Google online and find uh, c- quite a bit now about the um, trying to win. Uh, there's a, um, a a publication, Win Magazine, a little over a year after the burglary. Win Magazine uh, put out um, a, an anniversary issue that had all of the media files that had been distributed, and that is online. Uh, and it's a it's a very valuable resource, uh, and I and I recommend it to people. And we haven't gotten to COINTELPRO yet, but you also can learn quite a bit about COINTELPRO files uh, that were for the most important discovery. And in, in the end, I guess that came out of the media files, and you'll find quite a bit about 
COINTELPRO on, online now. Can I just comment on something you, you did, and I really appreciate sure. in de- describing what Stasi was. I should have done that. Um, it's, Stasi was this awful secret police of the East German government, and uh, it, the, there were informers everywhere, family members spying on family members, friend against friend. And what's interesting to me is that that was so widely known in our society and that the fact that people immediately made that connection, you mean that could be happening here when they described what was happening to black people, what was happening on campuses. And then years later, when we learned much more about the, the vast array of people that it was happening to, that more than anything, making that connection with Stasi uh, was uh, propelled the calls for the, for the FBI to be investigated. Yeah, there's a great movie in black and white. It's a German movie with subtitles. I don't know the name of it off the top of my head, but if you could find it, it's a classic. I think it's on Hulu all the time. Well, are you thinking of the lives of others? Yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, that's a yeah. great movie. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful movie. Um, it came out less than a decade ago, um, and as far as surveillance is concerned, I think it's probably the the best movie. You can find it's 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 truly excellent. It's a German made film, and I think it won it won the Academy Award. Right, very chilling. It's very uh, uh very chilling. Yeah. very chilling. Okay, so continue with the story. Go ahead. Um, where would you like for me to to, to go from here? There are a number of directions. Well, uh, you know what? I'd like to hear about the burglary itself and how they pulled that off and, and the details of that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. By the way, I mean maybe I should describe also how I came to, to know who they were okay. because they did evade discovery uh, for uh, forever. <laughs> um, they didn't, they were not known uh, until January 7th of last year when the day that my book was published and Joanna Hamilton's documentary, 1971, the story of the burglary uh, came out at a private showing that night in in New York, and then a few months later, uh, we premiered at the at Tribeca Film Festival. But until then, they were publicly not known. Um, what how I discovered them was that um, many years later, living there, working there, and I hadn't been back for many years. And so I filled up my schedule with appointments with uh, old friends and, and acquaintances that I had known all those years earlier. And the first night, uh, I was I was at John and Bonnie Rain's home. John and Bonnie Rain's are two of the eight burglars. And um, when I had called and said I was coming to town, they said, come to dinner. And so we had a lot of catching up to do. We weren't close friends then, but we were... We'd been acquaintances and people who liked and respected each other during those years. I'd been in Philadelphia in the late 60s. And so we, we were catching up with each other. And, and when we went to the dining room table, short time later, the youngest of their four children, who had not yet been born uh, at the time of the burglary, Mary, came into the room to ask them a question. And uh, when she did, uh, John said, Mary... Uh, this is Betty Metzger. We want you to know, Betty, because many years ago, when your dad and mother had information about the FBI that we wanted to give to the American public, 
we gave it to Betty. And I was absolutely stunned. Um, I had never had any idea who the burglars were. And I certainly never would have thought that it would have been John and Bonnie Rains. Um, couple by that time living in the, in the suburbs. John was a professor of religion at Temple University. And Bonnie was a, an advocate for children's issues and had been an executive at, at various public interest children's agencies. And so we talked about little else the, the rest of the evening. And that was the beginning of my desire to write a book. And they then went to the leader of the group and uh, told him that I wanted to do that. And they had revealed the connection. And then he got in touch with everybody else. And that was the beginning um, of my, my, my project. Um, and it through all the years that I've, I've worked with them, even to this day, now that they're out there speaking publicly and everybody, I am still just amazed at, at what they did. Um, the, the goal of the entire thing was the public interest. It's sort of an, an expression that it's lost its power. Mm-hmm. But these were people who decided that they were willing to risk decades in prison for the public interest. And it was Bill Davidon who had gotten the idea. And um, he then got in touch with the, the Rainses and all the other people involved. Keith Forsyth, a part-time cab driver at the time who had dropped out of college in Ohio and worked full-time against the war. Bob Williamson, um, at Saint, student at St. Joseph's, a Jesuit school in, in the city, who by that time was working as a social worker for the state of Pennsylvania, but also working as much as he could against the war. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Two people whose names, uh, who told their stories, but their, their names are, are not in, in the book. Um, well, one an academic, uh, another one who was in graduate school preparing to, to be in, in a health profession. Um, and then there was an eighth burger who I never found, and she's emerged in the past year, which is, she has a very different story from the rest of them, a quite remarkable story, and I hope we can get to that. So what happened was that they, everybody he asked, and there was a ninth burger, by the way, somebody who dropped out right before the burglary and who knew everything they were going to do hmm. and never revealed them, which is uh, interesting because it certainly was frightening to think about the possibilities of what he, how he could have made it um, impossible. But um, they worked from late December uh, until March 8th. First planning strategy and then casing, casing night after night in the neighborhood, uh, in this old suburban town, Media, Pennsylvania, county seat of Delaware County. And, um, the, the FBI office was on the second floor of a residential building of all things. It was a, a small brick building where the first two floors in the basement were office buildings. Uh, some other were government buildings, like a draft board office. Um, and then on the two floors above were apartments, and people lived in these apartments. And the building, was, the front door was open and well lit at all times, and you went up a central staircase 
that people in these apartments went up and down at any time. So there was no way that they could plan for, you know, what might, what those people might decide to do when they were going to burglarize an FBI office. So for months, they watched the patterns of when people came and went uh, from the building. And there was a courthouse. The county courthouse was diagonally across the street. And there was a guard 24 hours a day in the glass opening front door of that courthouse, looking right out where they would park, get out of their cars, and go into the building. Um, there was no way they could guard against that. They just had to hope that maybe he is, his attention would be diverted. They also watched the patterns of traffic, the police patterns. When did the police do rounds? Uh, and the people who lived across the street. They did that systematically. Uh, beginning in early January until right before the burglary. One of the first things that they did was choose a night for the burglary, and that turned out to be very important. Um, at first, you know, it seemed as though one night might be the same as any other night. But one of them, and they can't remember which one it was, one of them remembered that they had read that there was going to be an incredible boxing match the night of March 8th. And it was going to be a boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. Oh, sure. I remember that. <laughs> it was just an amazing event. And it's still considered the fight of the century. Yeah. And um, it was it was big for several reasons. Uh, first, um, Ali had been convicted for, for draft evasion, I believe it was six years earlier. And uh, the uh, boxing commissions around the country had immediately cut him off, even though that wasn't required that they do that, but they had. And he was very political. And, and so a lot, of, a lot of people in the sports world, they loved him as a boxer, but they hated him politically. And he, in the meantime, had spoken quite a bit, really, around the world was an internationally known figure and much-loved figure. Nelson Mandela remembers waiting for news of this boxing match from his prison uh, in Robbins Island. This is the first one? This is the first oh, yeah. one. He had done some sort of practice matches in Atlanta, but this was the first one after... Uh, it was the first one after he was convicted. It, it was huge, and it, it also it was... Uh, Played in movie theaters around the country. Well, that's that's a right. yes, that's a very interesting point. First time. I, well, the there were pr promoters were making a lot of money on this, as you can imagine. Yes. But when the tickets became available in Madison Square Garden, uh, they were sold out within hours. It was a capacity crowd, but the people who were promoting it um, got an, an agreement that no no American television network or radio network could broadcast it. In the meantime, they were selling the broadcast rights overseas so that people in, in other countries were able to see it on their local networks. But in the United States, the only way that people could see it was if they happened to live near uh, any of the, the few theaters in, in the country where the promoters were, were broadcasting it live. 
one of those was in Pittsburgh, by the way, and it was outside. It was in a drive-in, and it happened to be a very cold night. But people wanted to see this fight, and they were willing to endure anything. Yeah. So, But again, even people were upset about that. But the burglars had decided that they would the fight the the burglary should take place this night because they thought there would be white noise from people watching listening on their radios and televisions and even though people couldn't see it in the united states on their homes they were still glued to their televisions and their radios you know what happened was that they had pool reporters who would report between the bouts on the action that had just happened and you still had some of the sound of, of the fight and certainly the, the sound of the, of the people talking about the fight. So Keith Forsythe was the person in the group who was uh, volunteered uh, to do the actual break-in. The rest of them were waiting at a motel about two miles away. And the, he, the, I, the plan was that he was supposed to go to the motel and do the break-in, and then go back to the motel and tell him, okay, the coast is clear. So he uh, had been teaching himself uh, in the rain's attic how to um, break in from the lock. He had gone, looked out at the outside of the FBI door, saw what kind of lock it was, went to a hardware store, and bought two duplicates of that lock and one to take apart so he could understand it, and then the other to break in. And he thought he had it down so they could break in in 30 seconds. But when he arrived at the door that night, there were two locks, not one lock. And the second lock was much more complicated Mm. and one that he could not break in. And this was extremely upsetting, as you can imagine. So... He called back to the motel and Bill Davidon said, come back. And so they decided in some very tense minutes that, that Bonnie Rains had done inside casing when she posed a couple weeks earlier as a college student writing a paper on the hiring of, of women. And she had interviewed the agent in charge of the office and she was really in there, of course, to scope out the entire area. And so she said, you know, that is that other door that opens into the hall, and it has this very large filled cabinet in front of it. But it doesn't, they thought it probably didn't have a double lock, and it didn't. And they decided that despite the great risk of knocking over that cabinet um, and the length of time that it would take, that that's what he should do. So he went back. But this time, instead of just having his simple uh, break-in tools, he had a crowbar. And he it was a very slow, meticulous process. It was a deadbolt at the top of the door. He had to break it. It made a loud noise. And then he had to stretch out of the floor and very slowly break open the door. Hmm. And while he was doing that, he heard this loud clank at some point. Sounded like metal against metal. And so I thought, is that a gun? Somebody cocking a gun. And finally he talked himself down and said, okay, I just gotta do it. Finished, went inside in the dark, and there was nobody inside. 
closed, made the door look like it was closed, went back, and then the rest of them came. Four people in the dark, each of them carrying two large suitcases. And in the dark, they took out every file from filing cabinets and desks and put them in the suitcases. And then came down the stair, called, called from an FBI phone. Oh my God. Back to the hotel, motel, and said, okay. And then the burglars who were driving the getaway cars came, parked in front, and they loaded the cars, and they drove off to the farm where they sorted the files over the next 10 days. Wow. What an operation, man. Um, it still it seems just amazing that yeah. it could be planned. And, oh, and by the way, I left out the fact that while... Uh, Keith was down there on the floor with his uh, crowbar. He did hear the sound of the fight uh, from radios, televisions upstairs. And in fact, within the next couple of weeks, as FBI agents interviewed people, including in, upstairs in that, in that building, they said that they did remember that evening, but that they were watching the fight and that they weren't aware of anything else happening. So the fact that they chose that night turned out to be very helpful, I think. Now, what about, is there a statute of limitations on this crime? Or? Yeah. And it, well, when Hoover had announced publicly, uh, shortly after the files became public, that uh, he thought that they should be charged with espionage, which as we know from recent cases, is quite serious. And on some espionage statutes, there is no uh, limit on on this on the statute, but and Hoover died a little over a year later, and uh, I'm not sure who's responsible for it. But in the end, the charges uh, under which the, the the statutes under which they would have been charged were burglary statutes, and that expired uh, five years after the burglary, and the the case was was closed at that point. But that's not publicly announced. So they had no idea uh, whether the statutes of limitation had, had, had run. But they had made a promise to each other, and this is a very important point we haven't mentioned. Um, on the last day that they, they met, 10 days after the burglary, uh, out that, at that farmhouse, um, on that day, they agreed to two things. You know, first of all, that they wouldn't associate with each other after that, um, because of the concern that um, the arrest of one could lead to arrest of another. And the other thing that they agreed to uh, was that each of them would take the secret of the burglary to their graves. And when I met the, the Rains all those years later, and they told me the, the secret, they, they also told me that that this agreement exists. And so when I got back in touch with them uh, a few weeks later, I said, you know, will you talk to the others about that promise you made and reconsider it and be willing, I hope, to recognize that this is an important story, uh, an important piece of American history that's missing and that I would like to tell your story. Yeah, these, these people are heroes. 
Well, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> we should, you know, say that also the what this led to, and it was the, the files themselves were very important. But those kinds of things have a way of dying down, especially at a time like the early 1970s, when you move from, you know, one big thing to another. Like, for instance, three months later, the Pentagon Papers came out. Daniel Ellsberg gave the Times and the Post Pentagon Papers. And that sort of overtook. There's the media files have come out like every 10 days to two weeks until sometime in May. And then the Pentagon Papers came out. And there were many aspects of, of that that riveted public attention. And, uh, and then we had Watergate. But as it turns out, there were a number of the, the efforts continued to move in, in, a, in a quiet way to do something about, about what, they had, what they had revealed. I mean, the first thing that, that happened that uh, was the, the call by some members of Congress and by leading editorial writers for an investigation of the FBI. And uh, everybody who called for an investigation, nearly everybody who called for an investigation, thought that Sam Irvin, Senator Sam Irvin, uh, from North Carolina should be the person to lead such a committee in, in an investigation. And he didn't respond for quite some, some time. He, he's someone that went on to, to uh, great praise just a few years later as the uh, chair of the Senate Watergate uh, committee. And he, but even back then and earlier, he was considered the person who loved and defended the Constitution more than anyone else in Congress. And so he was urged over and over to do this. And finally, in late April, he publicly announced, I'm, I'm not going to do this. Uh, I think Mr. Hoover is doing a fine job. Really? And this was in stark contrast to the things that he had said earlier about surveillance and what a terrible thing it was to in a democratic society. So what happened after that, about a year later, a journalist named Carl Stern, he was an NBC television reporter who covered criminal justice. And Carl happened to be in the office of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee. And while he was waiting for uh, someone to get a, a file copied for him, some person he had met in the office said, uh, you know, look at this. And it was one of the media files. And it was a file that ended up probably being the most important file. Um, and all it was was a, um, a form uh, to uh, go and uh, to be attached to a file, a label. And it, at the very top in big block letters was the word COINTELPRO. And that meant nothing. Uh, to Carl, and it certainly didn't mean anything to me when I saw it and wrote about the file that was attached to it. And at the bottom of this cover sheet, well, you know, labeled, wait, let, let's yeah. stop there because COINTELPRO is a huge, and we have to take a break uh, for another three minutes and uh, 40 seconds. Uh, so we'll get into that when we get back from the commercial. Uh, okay. But uh, great stuff, man. Uh, you're my hero. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I'm not a hero. No, uh, trust me. You're my hero. Okay. Uh, we are here with Betty Metzger, uh, the author of The Burglary, uh, as well as uh, Winds of Change, Framed, 
and women at work. You can get a, a, a copy of these books. If you go to my website, uh, operamareportblogspot.com and uh, click on the link there and go straight to Amazon, pick it up tonight. Uh, we'll be back right after these messages. And now a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, this show is brought to you by pscoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to pscoco.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, it could be in your mailbox in a couple of days, or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the Contact Us button, and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the Cocoa Chocolate business, and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. But you also do all kinds of different services for you. An online dating service investigation is called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites. And we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication, or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, but we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your, or your birth child you gave away for adoption, we can do, do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets, hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing. If you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. It's the Opperman Report. Join digital forensic investigator and PI Ed Opperman for an in-depth discussion of conspiracy theories, strategy of New World Order resistance, high-profile court cases in the news, and interviews with expert guests and authors on these topics and more. It's the Opperman Report. And now, here is investigator Ed Opperman. Okay, uh, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator, Ed Opperman. Uh, don't forget the show's brought to you by audible.com. Go to audibletrial, front slash, dot com, uh, audibletrial dot com, front slash, Opperman Report. Uh, sign up for free, get yourself a free audio book, and that helps support the show. Now, if you're a brand new listener, it's the first time you're hearing this show. Uh, we do this kind of work every kind of, every week. These are the kind of shows we do every week. Um, please visit my website. OppermanReport.com, uh, and send me some feedback. If you like the show, uh, suggestions for future guests at OppermanReport at gmail.com. We are here tonight with Betty Metzger, uh, the author of The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI. Uh, she's written a couple other books too, uh, um, Winds of Change, Framed, and Women at Work. And, uh, 
Uh, Betty's a, a very, uh, we got to thank people like Betty uh, for sticking their necks out for us here and, uh, and, and educating us about this kind of stuff. Everybody throws the word COINTELPRO uh, around these days, but, but these are the people that really uh, uh, did the hard work uh, to, to let us know about it. So, Betty, you were telling us about COINTELPRO. Yeah, uh, about the, the accident that uh, uncovered it. I mean, the accident beyond the burglary itself. Right. Um, I was mentioning the fact that Carl Stern, NBC reporter, uh, was uh, in this the office of the Senate Judiciary Committee when someone handed him that file from the media file that said Colin Telpo. And I asked him, do you know what this is? And he said, no, I never heard of it. And uh, at the bottom of this cover sheet, it said that um, it was a, a memo instructing FBI agents to uh, distribute the attached article, which was about how um, college administrators should exert more control over anti-war protesters, how they should uh, deliver it in a, through anonymous letters to uh, college administrators who are not friends of the FBI. And that really struck Carl as unusual. He didn't realize that the FBI was in the business of, of writing anonymous letters. And so um, he decided to find out what COINTELPRO was. And he wrote to the acting director of the FBI, Pat Gray, and uh, to Klein Deans, who was then the, uh, the acting Attorney General Watergate was having a big impact at that point in creating a lot of acting rather than permanent officials. And uh, they turned him down and again said, as they had said to the Washington Post the day we received the files, uh, that the COINTELPRO must not be revealed because it would, uh, to do so, uh, would endanger national security. And uh, they never explained what that was, what that would mean. And so Carl kept asking, and they kept saying no, and finally the attorney, acting attorney general said, this is the end. I will not deal with this any further. And at that point, um, and I think we're in 19, late 1972, Carl sued under the Freedom of Information Act. The Freedom of Information Act had been passed in 1966, and no one had ever gotten anything out of the FBI under the Freedom of Information Act because Hoover had uh, instructed FBI officials to ignore any request that came in under the Freedom of Information Act. So Carl sued, and um, a judge ordered the FBI uh, by the summer of 1973, I believe it was, uh, to hand over. And all Carl was asking for was um, the documentation of the founding of COINTELPRO that would define what it was. He wasn't asking for the files of the program itself. And finally, uh, a judge ordered them to, to do that, and they refused. And um, the Justice Department prepared to appeal. And another emergency event took place um, in Watergate history, and it was the, the night uh, that was called the Saturday Night Massacre yes. when Nixon fired a series of attorney generals and their successors, one after the other, because they refused to fire the Watergate prosecutor. And uh, by midnight, the person who was attorney general was a person who had just been solicitor general, and that was um, Robert Bork, 
And Robert Bork is known in history primarily for the fact that Democrats in the Senate fought fiercely during the Reagan administration and successfully to keep him from being on the Supreme Court because of how conservative they they thought he was. Um, and in fact, he was as, as an appeals court judge. But on during these months, right after he became acting attorney general, he decided that COINTEL should become public and he ordered the FBI to provide the documentation to Carl. And this was the beginning of what you could call uh, an avalanche of what we came to learn about the FBI. As what those, those founding papers documented was that COINTELPRO was a series of, of operations, each guided against a specific community of people. The first one against the communists, uh, one against the Socialist Workers Party, uh, others against uh, black activists. And they became more and more nebulous. The last one was against the new left, which was just about any liberal that, that he, he realized was out there being an activist and organizations. So it was against, it was directed against organizations and activists, uh, in, as individuals. But what was, uh, one of the things that was, uh, important about COINTELPRO was that it was not the gathering of intelligence for law enforcement purposes or for any constructive purposes. It was um, putting informers in, in place to harass people. And that harassment took many different forms. I describe it as uh, going from uh, crude uh, to cruel to, to murderous. Um, it involved doing such things as um, breaking up marriage, having as a goal to break up marriages uh, by sending false uh, letters to uh, a, a, a partner about the husband or wife, uh, and they're never finding out the truth. Um, and then it had more serious aspects to it, more physically harmful aspects to it, of setting group against group. And this was especially true in the black community. Um, and it was most powerful in the, in the Black Panthers, but also in groups that were, who were completely nonviolent. I mean, in Hoover's mind, uh, Martin Luther King's organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was just as much of an enemy as the Black Panthers were, and he paid equal attention to them. And so the idea was to destroy individuals, destroy organizations that he thought uh, had, had bad ideas, ideas that, that he disagreed with. And that included the women's movement, included the gay movement, as small as it was at the time. And uh, the thing that was discovered that probably is most remembered was his long and ugly campaign against Martin Luther King that involved uh, sending tapes uh, in which he tried to uh, convince him uh, that he should commit suicide uh, because then this was done just a, a short amount of time before he was to go to uh, to Norway to to receive the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Um, he had made recordings of, of King's hotel conversations with women he had met and sent the, the recordings to both King and to Coretta King, his wife. And that was not known uh, until uh, the COINTELPRO information started coming out. And once again, just as when the files first came out, when this was learned, uh, there were cries now for, for the FBI to be investigated. And now Hoover was dead. And many people will tell you who were involved back then will say that the investigations never would have taken place if Hoover had been alive at the time. And I think that's probably true because the, the power was just, the threat was so great. The files that we then learned that he had on members of Congress and, and, and other people. Um, so what we learned uh, came out gradually beginning with what what Carl started revealing in 19, late 1973, and then actual COINTELPRO files started to emerge little by little. And then um, there was a tipping point. And the tipping point was um, a story that um, Cy Hirsch wrote in the New York Times in December 1974 that revealed that the CIA, in violation of its charter, had massive domestic surveillance projects that had been going on for more than a decade. And that also increased the anger. The CIA was not supposed to be doing any kind of domestic spying, except as it related to uh, objects of, of their surveillance overseas with enemy countries. So when that happened, it truly was a tipping point. And within weeks, by the before the end of January, both houses of Congress had passed resolutions to create committees uh, that would conduct investigations of, the, of all intelligence agencies. And the one that uh, became best, better known and had the most impact was the Church Committee, named for Senator Frank Church uh, from from Idaho. It did very significant investigations uh, of all intelligence agencies. And uh, that led to recommendations from those committees uh, to Congress. And some of the most important ones uh, were the establishment of permanent oversight committees. Oversight committees had never existed before, oversight of intelligence. And these investigations led to the permanent oversight by the House and, and the Senate. Also led uh, the Attorney General to make uh, a number of, of guidelines for, intel for, for the FBI, which came under the Attorney General. They ended up being much less meaningful because every new Attorney General could could change them in whatever way he or she wished to do so. And maybe the one of the most important things that happened um, as a result of, of the burglary was that in 1974, as we were learning more and more about the, the activities, the dirty tricks and the violent things that were, were done, um, was the strength that Congress strengthened the Freedom of Information Act. Mm -hmm. It had been uh, very, very weak and strengthened it uh, so that agencies 
had to respond to be there. It could still prolong it and make it very difficult. It would cause you to have to go to court to actually get anything. But uh, it did strengthen it quite a bit. And, and, and that was a, a very meaningful re- reform that came out of all of this. Oh, boy. Well, let me ask a couple of questions. Because um, I've had people on here uh, who felt that the, the church committee hearings were pretty much like a whitewash as well. Now, you have a lot of good faith in them? No, the church committee was not a whitewash. Um, the church, we had never had anything like that. Maybe what the questioner is thinking about is what happened afterwards. I mean, we're talking the church committee hearings started in 75, and then the final recommendations were 76. And so there was a period there in the right in the middle of the 70s where there was a lot of action, a lot of reform taking place. But maybe what the uh, listener is, is thinking about is what happened uh, as of uh, the election of Ronald Reagan as, as president. Um, after the re- the reforms that had taken place, even the removal of 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 COINTELPRO, not just COINTELPRO files, but political surveillance files at the order of the FBI director, um, then we entered into a, a different kind of period. It, it was the first presidential campaign where um, intelligence agencies became part of, of of the campaign, and one of the things that Reagan said in his campaign was that if elected, that he would unleash the FBI and give it back the the power that the church committee and members of Congress had taken away. And that did start to happen. Uh, His his first attorney general, William French Smith, uh, immediately diluted the attorney general guidelines and that the FBI at times then started doing some of the same kinds of, of dirty tricks, never as bad as it had under Hoover, but some that were uh, very bad. And the pattern that started then was that um, this would go on uh, for for a while. Nobody would know about it. Then it would become public or there would be a story. And there would be a call for an investigation. There would be a hearing and the information would become public of what the FBI was doing, for instance, for the solidarity organizations uh, in connection with El Salvador. Right. Um, and then the FBI would apologize and there would just be a mild slap on the slap on the wrist and no one was ever punished. Um and that was in, in, in contrast to some of the things that did happen in the mid to 1970s, where some people were punished, three top officials, including the man who became Deep Throat, Mark Felt, but who, in fact, uh, would people know his history as much less heroic than we think from, from Deep Throat. He was one of the who was top aides, had approved absolutely despicable COINTEL pro projects. And uh, was, in, in fact, along with another top aide, uh, convicted for his unlawful activities. And again, one of the first things that Reagan did, which had a very symbolic, important symbolic and actual impact, uh, was to pardon those, those two high, high FBI officials for, for what they had done. Oh, really? I wasn't aware of that. 
Yeah, yeah. So that a lot of investigations took place, even from not just in the in Congress, but also uh, in the Justice Department uh, during during the late seventies. At times, they were going. For instance, the New York FBI office had become. Um, just like the Philadelphia office and uh, some other major cities, had become so focused on political surveillance, COINTELPRO activities that other forms of crime oh, weren't, were hardly being followed. Uh, and this was a, 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 when the investigations went on, then it became a focus on, on going after uh, those off, people in those offices and for whether they had engaged in criminal activity. And there was pretty much general agreement that many had, but then it finally focused on, okay, let's go only for the people at the top. And then Reagan destroyed what what had happened when that approach was temporarily successful. And by the way, I mean, one very important COINTELPRO project that I should mention um, Everybody, I think, knows about Martin Luther King. Sure. There's also a, a, something else that was very extreme, and that was Fred Hampton, right. uh, Black Panther leader in Chicago, uh, who was murdered uh, by Chicago police officer. But the FBI was involved in the planning of that to the point of having an informer uh, in the apartment, ingratiating himself. And then drawing a map uh, to where the shooters should go, drawing an arrow, Fred's bed, pointing out the side of the bed that he slept on. They were directly involved in that. And then the shooter, uh, uh, not the shooter, but the FBI informer who made it possible, um, got, had a letter of praise and uh, a financial reward for his role in making it possible for Fred Hampton to be killed. And then on a lesser but uh, incredibly awful level also where uh, an example uh, would be the false testimony planned uh, by the FBI of informers being trained to give false testimony that led to convictions um, of people for, for, for murder, uh, including one person in Los Angeles who served 27 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit, uh, all because of F- the FBI uh, simply wanted to get, get rid of him and didn't have truthful information, so made up information. And, and who was that? Do you remember? Um, I'm sitting here trying to remember. Like, please, Geronimo Pratt. Oh, Geronimo Pratt, of course. Geronimo Pratt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, boy. You know, I had uh, Mark Rudd on the show. Uh, former Weather Underground. Mm-hmm. And, and, and he said that uh, one of the reasons why he wasn't, uh, his, his uh, charges were thrown out was because of COINTELPRO, uh, FBI mis- misbehavior, kidnappings and stuff like that. Uh, do you have any specific information on that? You're talking about the Chicago 7 case, I see. Uh, no, I'm talking about the, the Weather Underground bombings in, in New York City. The, uh, oh, 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 oh. That no. he he skated all those charges, he said, because of uh, uh that they were all thrown out because of uh, FBI misbehavior and kidnappings and such. Uh. Well, I certainly I cannot speak directly directly to his case. That's for sure. Um, 
uh, one of the it's interesting. I, I mentioned earlier. I mean, what he said is possible. Yeah. I just I just don't know. Uh, one of the things that uh, is is interesting to note is that the by being this kind of of agency and and. Remember, we're talking really about a half century. We're talking about from 1924 until Hoover died in 72, where he was from the beginning forming an, an agency that was built around his um, political hatreds, is one way to say it. Um, but one of the most important results of, of that, in addition to what did to destroy um, a, a d- dissent among many Americans, um, is that it prevented the FBI from accomplishing its mission as a law enforcement agency. I mean, for instance, there were many bombings in this country in the late 1960s and early 1970s. There isn't an instance of the FBI, despite all of these informers that they had out there, getting information that led to the prevention of any of that crime. Um, and that's, I find that rather remarkable. I mean, you would think that that would be the goal. Uh, if you're, if you have an army of informers, you know, that your goal would be to prevent crime. <laughs> uh, and that was, that was not the goal. Well, do you think that they had enough agents in there that they were just allowing these things to go on? I think that they were so, um, that the mission was so distorted, that the mission was so based on on his hatreds and a desire to destroy individuals and and organizations that people weren't trained in how to get actual information that could have led to to arrest, but more importantly, to the stopping of of violent actions that led to deaths. So you think that even though they were so uh, entrenched into all these leftist groups, right, and, and had so many informants in there and so much uh, agitators in there, that, that still they weren't aware of these? Well, don't forget, we're talking about them being entrenched mostly in groups that were not doing anything. That's true, too, yeah. Not doing anything violent. Yeah. They were people who were uh, ex- using their their right to dissent. Uh, perfectly uh, with, within their within their rights. Um, so the the emphasis was just in going after anyone who had liberal, let alone radical ideas, and in the end, that meant that they sacrificed being a, a, a law enforcement agency, a good law enforcement agency. Do you have any specific information on the infiltration with the Chicago 7? I don't. Okay. I don't. I mean, I've, I've read over the years much about the, at the time of the convention, um, the FBI uh, and the Chicago police, too, certainly were infiltrating many of the, of the groups that were coming to Chicago. Yeah, NYP. I'm from New York, you know, as you can mm-hmm. tell from my accent. <laughs> I guess you picked that up, right? But uh, N- NYPD at the time also had their own red squad, you know, uh, that would. And so did in Los Angeles, yeah. where you are now. Yeah. 
Well, well actually, I think I think almost every every major city did. And, and did any of those documents come out the in, in your work? They didn't come out in my work. I mean, my work is 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 focused completely on on the FBI. Um, and I, I, I was not researching what those, what those police departments were doing, okay. but I have read about it through the years. I mean, just in the same way that any other citizen might, I know that that was going on extensively. Okay. Um, we're coming up to another, uh, half hour break here. Uh, so we're here with, uh, Betty Medster, uh, the author of, uh, Burglary. Uh, she's also written Winds of Change, Frame and Women at Work. And we'll be right back with more of this uh, after these messages. And now a word from our sponsors. Don't forget, this show is brought to you by PSCoco.com. Phoebe Saad is an independent curator with the Cocoa Exchange. The Cocoa Exchange is formerly known as Dove Chocolate Discoveries, and they make the finest silky smooth chocolate because the products start with the best cocoa beans, which are tested for quality and flavor by expert technicians. The Cocoa Exchange offers not just premium chocolates, but anything from sauces and spices to brownie and cake mixes and even coffee and martini mixes. If you wish to treat yourself or someone you love to a sweet and tasty gift, then the Cocoa Exchange is the brand for you. So you go to PSCocoa.com, you click on the Shop Now button, you can see all their beautiful chocolates, you can order it right now tonight, it could be in your mailbox in a couple of days. Or if you want to get into the chocolate business, you want to be a, a chocolatier just like Phoebe Saad, click the Contact Us button, and you can learn how to get your own website, go into the cocoa chocolate business, and sell chocolate and make a little bit of money there. I want to welcome a newest sponsor, SubashTechnosis.com. Subash Technosis is a search engine optimization and website design company. They're located in India, so you know you're going to save a lot of money and get top quality service. They offer all sorts of business process outsourcing, data entry, banking BPO services, recruitment process outsourcing, software testing, offshoring research network, customer care, press release, content writing and distribution, and much, much more. Now, you can get a hold of Subash Technosis by email at info at SubashTechnosis.com. Their website is www.subashtechnosis.com and their Skype is A-N-U-S-H-A-S-U-B-A-S-H. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by emailrevealer.com. You can go to emailrevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. But you also do all kinds of different services for you. An online dating service investigation is called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites. And we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication, or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, but we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your, or your birth child you gave away for adoption, we can do, do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets, hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing, if you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone, digital forensics. 
where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. You can have your ad played here at oppermanreport.com every Friday night, 5 p.m. and Saturday night, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And on Friday nights, too, we do a live portion for one hour that I just do a live monologue. The ads are very, very inexpensive, and they're also played in the Opperman Report member section. In the member section, you can find all kinds of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. It's as cheap as $6 a month, $20 a quarter, or $75 for a year. If you contact me directly at OppermanReport at gmail.com, I'll set you up with a little special deal there where you get a discount if you PayPal me directly and even get a copy of my book. I want to thank Sean Duff at strawmanmusic.com. He's an excellent musician. And I also want to thank William Ramsey, who helps us to produce the show and book guests, who's an excellent author at William Ramsey Investigates on YouTube. Uh, welcome back to the Opperman Report. I'm your host, private investigator at Opperman. A uh, show brought to you by audible.com. Go to audibletrial.com front slash Opperman Report. Get yourself a free audio book. Uh, we're here tonight with uh, Betty Medster. Uh, the author of uh, The Burglary, as well as Winds of Change, Frames, and Women at Work. And I got to tell you, we have been treated tonight to a real education, you know, like a real valuable lesson uh, in, in American history of the FBI at a, at a controversial time in our history. And, and Betty, I can't thank you enough. Uh, your presentation tonight has been... Uh, outstanding and I, I cannot thank you enough um i'd like to ask you this yeah. um where we are today right how, how do you feel um do you feel like the <laughs> you know we're, like we're in deep trouble now <laughs> like it's a hundred times worse or uh, or that uh we're at the same level or uh, do you think things have gotten better hmm. Well, <laughs> I, uh, I don't feel so good. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I always feel so good about working with these people who um, took the little concept of citizen responsibility so seriously. Um, I know I always like to think that their story says so much about the importance of um, Asking questions. I mean, it, most of us can, can can never engage in a serious act of resistance. I mean, don't have the courage, but at least we can keep asking questions of all kinds. And when we speak uh, or show Joanna's film, 1971, people ask, say, what can I do? I mean, sometimes for me, it really comes down basically to that, ask questions and demand answers. Um, when I was working, uh, in the last few months of my book on when Edward Snowden's files started coming out and Joanna and I both were keenly interested and were just sort of amazed that here we had another person, this one inside rather than somebody from outside government. Uh, but the only way that we were learning all of this important information was because somebody was willing to risk the rest of their 
years uh, to make the information public. And um, we've learned a lot. I think many attitudes, the polls are correct, many attitudes have changed. Um, I often think about what's the difference. I think that the, the congressional action to uh, peel back on the NSA's ability to retain the records, it's significant, but there's so much that we learn that's not had anything done to it by Congress or the Obama administration. Uh, surveillance of, of Americans, but also surveillance of, of, of our allies, not just our enemies, right. but also our allies overseas in massive numbers. Um, and I find it, I find it discouraging that there's been so little, what feels to me like so little reaction in, in this country. Um, Fritz Schwartz, who was the legal counsel to the church committee and was in charge of the investigations, um, has written a book recently called Democracy in the Dark. And um, he has called for a congressional investigation of NSA. Um, and I think that he would readily say that, again, it should be all intelligence agencies. There's no, there seems to be no appetite for that kind of thing now. Uh, no interest in, in Congress in saying, okay, let's find out what is happening in the, each of these agencies. We found out about torture in the CIA. Um, there's a, probably a lot more for us to learn about in the CIA, the FBI, and NSA. And I don't feel an appetite for that. And Mr. Schwartz believes that it will happen, but it's it's going to, to take much, much more time. Um, I think it's it's a... It's a different time in that when the media files came out, even though this went against the culture of protection of intelligence agencies, there also was a culture, uh, a strong culture among uh, a significant minority of people that we should speak out against the war and raise questions about the war, which was a new thing for Americans to do. Um, so that fueled part of the, of the public and also Congress to be willing to take the step to say something needs to happen. This should not be going on in a democratic society. I think also the fact that the war was going on far away and despite some extremist rhetoric, there wasn't a sense among many Americans that they felt endangered. By the, they didn't think that the war was going to come home. Um, and so that also wasn't a factor in people being willing to show more courage about investigating intelligence agencies. But now, I think, despite the number of years that we are away from 9-11, 
I think that there is the straw, and we're certainly being told this can, continuously, that the war can come home at any minute. I think that that is the existence of that fear um, among a significant number of people also makes us less likely to say to Congress, something needs to be, needs to be done about this. And I just have to say, I don't, I don't have, um, I don't have enough knowledge or understanding to know what, what's likely to happen. Are we likely to become more concerned and say that we do not believe in massive political surveillance rather than targeted surveillance? Um, uh, the endless expansion that technology makes possible? Um, or are we going to say um, this must change? I, I don't know. Okay, a couple of questions. Well, first of all, who's going to call for this? <laughs> you know, who's going to call for this? Uh, uh, you know, uh, who's going to object to this uh, surveillance state we live under now? Uh, and even if people, it seems like people do object, but the, the media doesn't object at all. And the Congress certainly doesn't object. You know, he's, he's some little lip service by Rand Paul the other night. You know what I'm saying? It, it seems like the, the even the media now and Congress, this oversight, all this kind of stuff, it's all rigged. Uh, well, there are more reporters covering this than ever before. Um, and, and major major news media have multiple people covering these things. But that's also changed in um, very, what I consider dangerous ways. The, the technology that is now focused on people inside the government, insider threat, is a, a large program that we still do not understand the full dimensions of. But uh, if it's believed that someone is in touch with the news media. Um, they are there at any time. The government has the capacity with federal employees to monitor their their phone calls. I don't just I don't mean listen in, although they they could do that. But I just mean keep a rec careful record yeah. of everything that who they're calling, who's calling them, how long they're talking. Um, they federal employees in Washington uh, wear uh, those tags that register when they when they enter and, and, and leave their, their their buildings, and the same with the with the press in Washington. So for the journalists who are paying close attention to this, uh, the the surround is feels like a very tight circle and makes this kind of uh, kind of coverage increasingly difficult. I, there, there are quite a few people that are quite dedicated to doing it and, and do do very significant stories. But the, it is, it's, um, the, the, the pressure on the journalist and the sources inside is enormous. And the Obama administration has increased it and brought charges against, uh, more whistleblowers. I mean, war on whistleblowers sounds like an extreme thing, but I think if you were a potential whistleblower right now in the federal government, you would indeed feel as though there's a war on whistleblowers because it's it's extremely difficult to figure out how you can get the information out 
you almost are, you are placed in a position where you have to take an enormous risk. You know, you know, it's interesting because the irony of it is, uh, you know, I had uh, uh, Richard Lambert, uh, the FBI agent who was in charge of the anthrax investigation. Mm. I had him on the show. He's just recently filed a lawsuit against the FBI. And uh, he had written a memo criticizing the FBI investigation to anthrax. Uh, then he left the FBI, went to work for the Department of Energy as in security. And uh, they took a, a lobbyist law where you're not allowed to contact your old employers, you know. But he's mm. he's in security. He has to contact the FBI as part of his security job for the Department of Energy. They took that, fired him, and raided his offices. So it, it's kind of ironic that they would go after an FBI agent you know, himself who's, who is normally on the other side. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, but but you're absolutely right. It, That's it, terrible. Yeah. But but now I have a question for you. Um, when you see these cases today, right, uh, of uh, when you see these, well, these uh, local plots, these terror plots, um, and they arrest the guy for, for plotting terrorism, and then it turns out that the, the people he was uh, plotting with were all FBI agents, and they were supplying him with a fake bomb. It seems like the whole thing was, was a, an operation. Yeah, and there are quite a few of those. There's a book, I believe it's called The, the Terror Factory. Oh, uh, which is about these, these plots that that are largely manufactured. The author uh, has pretty strong evidence uh, by the FBI and, and informers. I come back again to um, a large amount of incompetence. Uh, one of the things that I fear in what's come out of 9-11 is that the the fear and the motivation to stop anything, everything, was so great. And the technology had changed so much that law enforcement felt that they would use whatever technology they had to the max and surveil surveil everyone and just suck in as much as possible, whether you're talking about phone calls, mail, email, uh, whatever. And that that in itself has turned out to be the creation of incompetence. Instead of, instead of taking new technology and figuring out how to shape it very well so that it can target rather than take in massive everything, um, that it's, it's, it's turned law enforcement agencies into incompetent agencies. And they, in turn, go back to lean on in order to have an accomplishment in the end. They lean on informers too much, just as, as J. Edgar Hoover did. And also, it leads to the creation of the kind of false cases we're talking about, where the testimony comes out gradually, and we find that people uh, were led into becoming something that many, if not most of them, did not want to, want to become, and then they're arrested in the process of being supposedly about to commit a terrorist crime. There have been some documentaries that even included 
um, the video in the cars as the informers were talking with the the people that they wanted to participate in, in the crime and where you saw that the, the people clearly were not, not interested and over days and days they were convinced by the FBI agents that there would be a better life ahead for them if they committed these crimes. You feel like you're watching the mob at work. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree with you. Now, um, we're coming toward the end of the show, okay? It's 6.49, so we've got about 10 minutes left, uh, and then we're going to drop a couple of stations. But I do go another hour. Uh, would you like to stay and try and take some phone calls and, and continue this? Because I know, I know you wanted to tell me also, too, about one of the uh, the burglars who uh, had left the group and something about that. Uh, the one who left the group and then the, the eighth burglar would be found. I'd be happy to talk about if if you uh, feel there's interest in, in, in going ahead. Sure. Oh, oh, are you kidding me? I'm loving this. <laughs> okay. I'm like at the edge of my seat. Listen, normally I'm interrupting all the time. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm really, really enjoying the story. I'm enjoying it. It's kind of a... Yeah, it's a pretty yeah. awful story. <laughs> uh, but this is the kind of stuff that we're fascinated with. And I know my audience is love this. Um, but, but we're going to lose a, a couple of the stations that, that we're on in about 10 minutes. So okay. it, what, what would you want to leave us with in this last 10 minutes? Uh, I guess the most important thing is the citizens being aware. The thing I worry about the most is people sleeping. I feel either people being sleeping or because of the culture that numbs them or just having developed a lack of interest. I met a 20-year-old who said, I don't think I'll ever vote. And it didn't wasn't an angry statement. It was just a, you know, like I don't have any responsibility. Um, and I think that the message of the burgers is that people can make an incredible difference by asking questions and sometimes going far beyond asking questions. You, you think so still today? Because I, I, I get a lot of people on here. Even, well, don't you think Snowden's made a difference? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't. And even Cynthia McKinney, you know, she, she came on here. I get a lot of people come on and, and they say, oh, yeah, we can vote out the rascals. You know, uh, that kind of uh, optimistic kind of attitude, which I love, you know, and, and there's a side of me that, that, that would love to. But it, it, let's look at the election we have right now. If we're going to vote out the rascals, who are we going to vote in? Even Bernie Sanders. Uh, do you really trust him and, and, and endorse what, what he's saying? Well, I want to know what he thinks about more more issues, for one thing. I mean, I respect what he's saying, and I like what he's saying. I don't really have much idea what he thinks about racial issues. And I, that's that's a very important issue to, to me, and I think in this society should be. Um, but look, I'm old. I've spent, a, I've voted a lot of times, and uh, most of the time, I wasn't voting enthusiastically. Mm. But I, right now, I'm voting the same way for instance, that I voted, uh, I imagine this will be true, the same way that I voted in 1968, when most of my friends were determined not to vote for, for Hubert Humphrey um, because of how, how much, how angry they were about his not having more courage in opposing Johnson within the White House on the, on the, on the war. But my chief concern then, and it's a big concern now, as far as who's president is concerned, 
is the Supreme Court. Wow. And the Supreme Court makes a huge difference uh, in whatever direction uh, you care about. And so I think that we, we have, as far as voting is concerned, we have to have the Supreme Court in mind. Well, okay. So then uh, did you support Obama? I'm talking personally now. Yeah, I supported Obama personally. Okay, but when they, okay, we put Obama in, but did anything really change? It's the same policy as we had under Bush. Did, do you think there was any, any difference uh, that we benefited from Obama over Bush? Looking back? I think the things, I think the things would have been much worse with a, with a Republican with Romney? administration. I mean, I, I don't like what's happened with the wars now, but I, I think that, that a Republican administration backed by uh, a Republican House and, and Senate that the, the wars would have been, would have been even, even worse. Um, I think that in the last few months that o- Obama has been um, a much stronger person in regard to some of the, the issues that, that some of us cared about back then. But I want to say, I don't have much, for instance, right now, it, this is not my area of expertise right now, by the way, and I'm, ta- I'm speaking about my personal opinions, but I, I don't have much hope about what will happen with in the, in the, in the, in the next election. Mm-hmm. I think that as it's going right now, that whoever is elected is likely to be a pretty strong hawk. Um, so we, in, in that sense, I don't approach this with a sense of hope, but I believe it's terrible to drop out and that we need to work in whatever ways we can. And uh, as I said, as far as my vote is concerned, my vote has the Supreme Court uh, as, its, as its goal. Um, and... I guess I, that's my my main thinking right now on this. Yeah, I, I can I can cause it does it does seem like our vote does have some effect on these kind of socialist issues, you know, uh, not any kind of economic issues or or foreign policy doesn't seem to me. Uh, but I guess some of these other issues uh, we do have some effect. Well, um, one of the things that concerns me is that because uh, Democrats. In the House and, and, and the Senate, after Obama was, was elected, uh, didn't uh, stand up and, and fight about issues that if he had been a Republican, they would have stirred up. They're now in a weakened position if they have a, a, a Republican who, who engages in some of the same activities, especially concerning civil liberties and the surveillance issues. Yeah, but don't you find like a, a, a lot of times I think that they, they like to put a, a Democrat face in there uh, and they steal more of our civil liberties uh, under the guise of this smiling face looking at us like it would Bill Clinton. And and even I hate to say it, even Jimmy Carter, you know, we lost a lot of our freedoms under Jimmy Carter as well. You know, I, not that I would ever endorse, you know, Reagan or Bush or any of those characters. Uh, but well, it- uh, it's, it's very clear, though, that because Jimmy Carter wasn't elected, that a lot of things happened under under Reagan that would not have happened under Carter. Very true. Including the reforms that were on a 
pretty good path under under Carter as far as as, as surveillance was concerned. I'd love to get Carter in there now. I love the way he talks now. Let's bring him back, man. This is the Carter we need. Oh, boy. Yeah, but even Carter doesn't seem to be very uh, uh, optimistic about the, our situation in this country. Right no, now. pretty pessimistic from what I've been reading. Yeah. yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, we're coming to the end of our show here. Well, I'd like to take some calls. 702-605-4894. Uh, we're with uh, Betty Metzger, uh, the author of uh, The Burglary. Uh, she's also written uh, Winds of Change, Framed, and Women at Work. And uh, I'd just like once again to say that uh, if this is the first time you've ever listened to this show and, and you're enjoying the show, uh, I really want to thank you. And, and send me a message at uh, oppermanreport at gmail.com. And let me know what you think of the show. And also visit the website oppermanreport.com because we have a member section there with all kinds of content in there that uh, uh, doesn't make it on the air. It's all like private content that I do these interviews during the week uh, for members only. Uh, so I'd really appreciate you taking a look at that and, and tell me what you think of that, because uh, we really want to welcome all the new people listening. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on board. Um, and uh, Betty's books. Uh, Betty, what about these other books real quick? We've got about a minute before we uh, drop these other stations. Framed and Women at Work and Winds of Change. I mean, I did. What are those about? Well, the first book um, was uh, Women at Work. And Women at Work is actually a photo book with text block. Um, I left the Washington Post to do freelance work. I left in uh, later in uh, 1973. And I spent uh, a year traveling all around the country, uh, taking photographs of women in traditional and non-traditional work roles. Um, women's movement was very much alive at the time. And to my surprise, I couldn't find any body of photographs that showed women at work. Um, and so that the only images that, that people had were traditional work roles. And I particularly had children in mind, although the book is not specifically a children's book. And so my, the message I wanted to convey was that women can do all kinds of things. And I wasn't pushing just the idea that women should go into non-traditional things, but that all of these roles were were valid if people wanted to do them. So you'll find uh, a, a woman lobster that I went to sea with in Maine uh, and a school teacher in Washington, D.C., a nurse and also a surgeon. I mean, it's just a, a thorough uh, combination of uh, women at work. And then that was an exhibit that, that traveled around the uh, country and, and, and other countries quite a bit in 1975, 1976. And you took the pictures yourself? I took the pictures myself, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I have a bit of a career as, as also as a, as a photographer. Um, and mostly photo, my fo photography with that book and uh, for a couple of years after that, before I returned primarily to teaching and to writing, was on, on dealing on breaking down stereotypes. And disability was also an area that, that I worked with, taking photographs of physically disabled people who lead independent lives, which was a relatively new thing at that, at that time. Um, and the other... Um, uh, the next book well, was... You know what? Let's take a break and we'll get to the other books when we get back. Okay, great. But also two people, it's a three-minute 
a 40 minute break. The same things less. <laughs> okay. And also two people can call in 702-605-4894. We'll be back with Betty Metzger, uh, author of, uh, the burglary, uh, winds of change framed and a photo book, uh, women at work where she took all the pictures herself. And we'll be right back after these messages. And now a word from our sponsors. Remember, all these shows on Awake are brought to you by EmailRevealer.com. You can go to EmailRevealer.com and get a copy of my book, How to Become a Successful Private Investigator. But you also do all kinds of different services for you. An online dating service investigation is called an online infidelity investigation. And that's where you give us your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend's email address, and we trace it back to their online dating websites. And we return a list of all the dating sites that that email is registered to. We can expand on that investigation and trace it back to porn sites, escort service sites, swinger sites, gambling websites, and even prescription drug websites. If you think your ex-husband or something is addicted to prescription medication, or involved in an extreme online pornography addiction, but we can produce a report for you that you can use in court. Adoption investigations. If you want to locate your birth parents or your, or your birth child you gave away for adoption, we can do, do adoption investigations for you. Asset searches for you. Locate bank accounts, hidden assets, hidden properties, hidden income, all different kinds of services in the asset search investigation. Email tracing. If you need to locate or identify somebody from just an email address, we can do an email trace investigation for you and all kinds of digital forensics, computer and cell phone digital forensics, where we can recover deleted content from an email or a hard drive and produce a report for you that you can use in court. That's emailrevealer.com or you can contact me at oppermaninvestigations at gmail.com. Archival Revival, the Christian Film Archive, is currently paying for vintage Christian films. They are dedicated to preserving and restoring classic Christian films and media. So if you have original prints, negatives, or other film elements of classic Christian films, or you have audio recording masters for classic Christian record albums, they want to buy them from you. So email archival.revival at gmail.com and they're going to make you an offer. Archival Revival wants to preserve these classic Christian films so that they continue saving people for years. These films have brought people to salvation. They want to continue that. Their staff has decades of experience in handling and preserving of film elements, utilize the very best climate-controlled film storage facilities around the world. Contact them today at archival.revival at gmail.com. If there's someone you know has these prints, negatives, recording masters, or other materials from vintage Christian films, you can check out their blog at archivalrevival.blogspot.com. Now, just so you understand, Archival Revival wants to pay you for these films. So you can look in your church attic, in the church basement. If you have a friend who runs a Christian youth ministry, these youth vacation Bible study camp, they have these old films in those big metal containers, 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter. Archival Revival wants to buy them from you. So this is a sponsor that actually wants to give you money. And all you have to do is contact them, tell them what you have. If you're in the UK or Ireland or Africa, uh, these films are all over the world and they're gathering dust and they're going to deteriorate if they don't get into the hands of Archival Revival. So that's archival.revival at gmail.com or the blog spot is archivalrevival.blogspot.com. Don't forget. You can have your ad played here at oppermanreport.com. Every Friday night, 5 p.m., and Saturday night, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And on Friday nights, too, we do a live portion for one hour that I just do a live monologue. The ads are very, very inexpensive, and they're also played in the Opperman Report member section. 
In the member section, you can find all kinds of exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. It's as cheap as $6 a month, $20 a quarter, or $75 for a year. If you contact me directly at oppermanreport at gmail.com, I'll set you up with a little special deal there where you get a discount if you PayPal me directly and even get a copy of my book. I want to thank Sean Duff at strawmanmusic.com. He's an excellent musician. And I also want to thank William Ramsey, who helps us to produce the show and book guests, who's an excellent author at William Ramsey Investigates on YouTube.